the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. At the time of our gospel lesson, the hated Roman authorities and their occupation, and the reign of their puppet kings in Jerusalem, had stoked centuries of longing, hopefully, into an expectant and explosive desire for supernatural deliverance. Such electrified politics and theology help us to make sense, then, of the fragmentation in the Jewish religion into several distinct groups, all of them laying claim to representing true Jewish faithfulness in light of these powerful expectations. You had the hyper-diligent moral fundamentalists seeking righteous purity to usher on salvation. Then there were the temple clerics who sought to maintain the true worship of God, but whose reputation had become somewhat tainted by Roman influence and involvement. Then there were the wilderness monastics, those who had withdrawn from the city, and their austerity and quasi-mysticism gave them an ethereal, a spiritual, but also kind of a strange and somewhat suspicious air. Finally, there were those revolutionaries who wanted decisive and calamitous political action against the nation's enemies. They wanted to do something here, now, about their problems, and suddenly and aggressively. Further adding to this religious chaos were somewhat frequent claims being made to, by different individuals claiming to be a divinely appointed messiah. St. Luke tells us in Acts that there had been at least several during the years leading up to Jesus' ministry that had claimed to being God's anointed one sent to deliver Israel, and that their followings had created mayhem before they had disbanded without effect. And so when John starts baptizing, dressed like the prophet Elijah, and instructing everyone to repent in preparation of the arrival of God's kingdom, it's enough to warrant an official investigation, because everybody is ready, perhaps too ready, to believe that the end is near. This brings us to the arrival of the inquirers at the Jordan River. The lesson reports that at least two groups whose questions are described in succession are present there, and they're put in succession to, so as to contrast their questions in our minds as the hearers. The first group is a collection of priests and Levites, relatively low-level temple clerics, sent on a fact-finding mission to discern what John is about with his peculiar but theologically symbolic behavior. Their questions are straightforward and reflect the popular theological opinions of their day. They ask him if he's the Christ, if he is Elijah, if he is the prophet. All three of these questions are referencing Jewish sacred texts concerning prophecy about Israel's restoration. And the big idea of the day is suggested that an appointed or an anointed savior prophet 
would arise after being heralded by the return of Elijah, who had not died but had been taken up into heaven. Essentially, these priests and Levites are looking for a sign that their hopes, their kind of um, their impassioned theological expectations are about to be fulfilled. But John disappoints this in that he flatly denies all three questions. Instead, quoting a passage from Isaiah, identifying himself as a nameless voice who prepares the way of the Lord. But this answer provokes a second group present at the river to start in with their questions, perceiving his non-response as an unsatisfactory answer. This group has been sent from that hyper-diligent moralist group on a similar mission. But unlike these other messengers, the priests and Levites, their questioning strays away from fact-finding and leans much more towards direct interrogation. Their question could be rephrased like this. Well, if you're not anyone important, why are you acting like you are? If you're not anyone we should be expecting, why should anyone care what you're doing? As was the case before, John's answer is indirect and immediately shifts the attention away from himself. For the second time, John self-describes by what he is not so as to point to a greater person who is yet to come. The irony here, of course, is that John had the perfect resume to be an apocalyptic Jewish savior hero figure. He was born under miraculous circumstances to aged parents, echoing iconic figures like Isaac and Samuel from Jewish heritage. He was from a distinguished lineage, descended from Zechariah, a ranking priest, one popular with that temple crowd. And how confusing it must have been for the priests and Levites that John was not to follow after his father in service to the temple. He was widely known for his savage asceticism, dressed in camel hair like Elijah and eating locusts in the wilderness, an appealing image if you are a religious purist. His resume was respectable in terms of pedigree and in terms of austerity. He really had the whole picture of Jewish spirituality. He bridged all of those warring groups. And yet in denying to be the icon of Israel's deliverance, John is denying to himself and his questioners the opportunity to capitalize on this pedigree and this experience for the sake of notoriety. He refuses to give them what they want, another hero to rally around, in order to bring them to the truth. And yet this denial is precisely what establishes John in his divinely appointed place as the forerunner of Christ. In order to serve in this iconic role, that person would have to be defined exclusively as one who points to someone else. There would be no room for a double heart in this mission. Any vainglory would only serve to divide the attention of an already over-eager crowd and create a disastrous religious confusion and political frenzy. Instead, witness John's faithfulness and profound humility 
he renounces his own voice in favor of the scriptures. And he summarizes his whole life's purpose as being oriented towards someone else and someone greater. John's ministry is perfected in this confession. I am what God has made me to be. I do what he has sent me to do. I exist to reveal his chosen one. This is the perfect lesson for us on the last day of Advent. We began the season with a prayer that we may cast away darkness and put upon us light. But that fierce conflict of light and dark is fought this morning in our souls by a much more nuanced discipline. This morning, John's witness calls us to set aside our own sense of qualification, our own sense of anything by which we might self-elevate in order and to put it all aside for the sake of pointing our whole lives toward Christ. We are called to see how even the great goods of inherited and acquired spiritual gifts, even a widely known reputation for holiness, even a legitimate claim to divine appointment might need to be pushed aside if it means we reveal Christ to others. John is the pattern of ministry. John is the pattern of all Christian life. We are given ourselves so as to magnify the Lord. He must increase, and we must decrease. This is the final lesson of Advent. At the end of all our study, and liturgy, and discipline, and prayer, there is Christ. When he comes to Jordan, the Baptist's ministry is now accomplished. When he comes in Eucharist, the liturgy has been fulfilled. When he comes again in glory, all will be gathered into the one through whom they came to be, and before the face of him who is beginning and end, Alpha and Omega, all must deny themselves and proclaim him as Lord. And so let us rejoice and pray. Our Lord is near. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.